We're going to have to turn around all those people who keep saying, but we've always done it that way. It's our young people that are going to have to do it. Welcome to The Ongoing Transformation, a podcast from Issues in Science and Technology. Issues is a quarterly journal published by the National Academies of Sciences, Engineering and Medicine and Arizona State University. The concept of wide adaptation was a controversial one in the late 1950s. The idea that plants could be bred to produce a high yield in a variety of environments rather than in a particular region was not popular among plant breeders. But with the help of an American agronomist named Norman Borlaug, wide adaptation came to be the central innovation of what we now know as the Green Revolution. But the legacy of this innovation is a complicated one. I'm Jason Lloyd, Managing Editor of Issues. On this episode, we caught up with Marcy Baranski, who spoke to us from her home in Bangkok. Marcy's new book, The Globalization of Wheat, A Critical History of the Green Revolution, was recently published by the University of Pittsburgh Press and reviewed in the summer edition of Issues by Marumita Saha. Marcy, thank you so much for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me, Jay. So before we get into your book and your research, I just wanted to talk a little bit maybe about your um, about your background and then what you do professionally. So I started my, you could say my educational career wanting to be a scientist, specifically had read this article in Newsweek about golden rice, and I thought, nutritional biochemist, that's what I want to be. So I, I think probably there weren't too many eighth graders thinking that, but that was me. So <laughs> I started studying biochemistry, working in research labs when I was um, doing my bachelor's. But at some point, I had probably, as many people in this space do, this epiphany that you know what, what you're doing in the lab, what you're doing in, in the field is not necessarily how that gets interpreted by society or used in society. That got me started on this whole social science path, um, started taking classes about like critical science studies, science and technology studies. And that's what led me to do my, my graduate program, my PhD at Arizona State um, in a program called Biology and Society. And so I still was very interested in scientific topics, specifically around agricultural research, I was thinking about how were farmers adapting to climate change, how were scientists thinking about climate change, and that's what led me to start my dissertation research in North India. When I started interviewing scientists there, I, I realized they kept using this term, wide adaptation, and that led me actually through like a historical project of, of just researching this history of wide adaptation because I realized that scientists were looking at climate change adaptation through this lens of a topic that I had thought was, was actually very outdated based on the reading that I've done. So my PhD and my dissertation, which became the book, look mostly like a history of science, but there's some innovation studies in there. There's some policy stuff in there. And the policy innovation stuff is what I've based my career on more than the history. Yeah. So let's talk about the book a little bit. So what was the Green Revolution, which is the overarching subject of your book? And maybe now, maybe we just talk a little bit about the conventional narrative around it. And then later on, we can get into some of the contested aspects of that history. Yeah. So the Green Revolution is this transformation of agriculture from 
kind of really traditional tools, traditional varieties to a more modern type of agriculture. And you can say it started in the 1940s, but um, really picked up speed in the 1960s and 70s. And it was this transition from, like I said, from using traditional varieties to using what we call modern or high yielding varieties of especially maize and wheat and rice. Also, the expansion of irrigation, the adoption of mechanical tools on the farm. Also, and maybe most importantly, the adoption of synthetic fertilizer, which um, by that point was you know, cost-effective enough to adopt in many parts of the world, although my book gets into a lot about that leading to some inequities because it's not affordable for everyone. But anyway, back to the conventional narrative, it's, it's just this idea of like science solving this problem of hunger in the world, that there were these ideas of the population bomb. People in the West were very afraid of these social and demographic transitions that were happening. And so, yeah, it over time become very simplified as this narrative about science and technology triumphing over social problems. So one of the key figures in the Green Revolution and, and one you focus on in your book a bit is Norman Borlaug. And I was wondering if you could talk about him and what his research was. Norman Borlaug was an American agricultural scientist who, starting in the 1940s, was working with the Rockefeller Foundation in Mexico. This was a project to improve wheat production in Mexico. He had also kind of a, an unconventional scientific path and, and actually wasn't trained as a plant breeder, but became, I would say, the world's most famous plant breeder. And what kind of set him apart was that he was very hardworking, but he, I think because of his non-traditional plant breeding background, he had studied actually botany and plant pathology, he thought outside of the box a little bit. And so most plant breeders were were thinking about developing varieties for really the local area that they were working. And Borlaug was thinking from an early stage uh, much broader than that. So it also helped that he was supported by the Rockefeller Foundation, who also was, was thinking about how their work could move beyond Mexico. And Borlaug is known for developing these high-yielding varieties of wheat, but he was also very politically active in getting countries to start uh, using more synthetic fertilizer and also convincing scientists that they needed to be breeding crops that could withstand these higher levels of fertilizer. So he was very passionate about that and feeling that many agricultural scientists were kind of stuck in the past and were, were just kind of inside their own bubble and needed to think broader about global food production, about moving into modern agriculture, as he had seen happen in the U.S. in his youth. What was he doing to kind of promote these techniques? Would he go and travel to other countries and talk with government officials? Or was he working with farmers primarily? Or was he sort of telling his bosses at Rockefeller and they would tell other people abroad? How did this information or this promotion work? The interesting thing about Borlaug is he really became kind of a diplomat. And one of the countries he's most known for his influence on is India. And at that time, it was seen as more neutral for a scientist to be 
going into India, especially one not affiliated with the U.S. government. So actually, there's a lot of connections between the Rockefeller Foundation and the U.S. State Department. But rather than having, say, the State Department diplomats go into India and say, like, oh, you should be doing this a certain way or you should be importing more fertilizer, Borlaug was seen as this less controversial figure um, to represent, you can say, American interests, but perhaps just to say a, a certain geopolitical view. That's really fascinating. And and a part that I find really interesting is the political context for the work that Borlaug was doing. Is that something that you talk about in the book? So that is something that I talk about in the book is the influence of Borlaug both on science and the politics that were happening in India and also how that influence continues today. I think some people who are somewhat familiar with the Green Revolution story might even have the understanding that Borlaug worked in India. But what is fascinating is he he never worked directly in India. He made, I think, only a few trips there, but through this network of the Rockefeller Foundation, some of the other U.S. interests, he became very, very influential, is very revered there today. There's there's a statue of him at India's um, National Agricultural Research Center, and even though he has passed away, his legacy continues to be very influential. I don't want to overlook, though, there was also some strong diplomatic moves going on from U.S. government, especially in the mid-1960s. President Johnson was very personally invested in India's agricultural modernization, and he used some pretty strong-arm tactics there, such as withholding food aid. So I I would say there was kind of this two-pronged thing of Rockefeller Foundation, as I said, coming in as this less political force, but they they were also aided by President Johnson's personal agenda in India and and other diplomats who are working behind the scenes and, and cutting deals, some of which I do go into in my book also. So there was a lot of pressure to like sort of get the Green Revolution going in the way that it transpired. So um, you mentioned it before, but could you talk about what wide adaptation is and how Borlaug kind of thought about it? Did he come up with the term or was it sort of existing and he just sort of focused on it in his research? He did not come up with the term. And actually, there's a very interesting paper that recently came out about the Green Revolution in Italy and how wide adaptation, how that played out differently there several decades earlier than the Indian Green Revolution. The connection there is that actually some of the seeds used in that time in in Italy made their way to Mexico and were used by Borlaug. And what these seeds, these certain varieties of wheat had was this property, it's a technical term called photoperiod insensitivity. It means, in other words, this variety is insensitive to the length of day and it can be grown at different times of year. So for example, in India, they plant wheat at a different time of year than we would grow it in the US or Canada or, or Mexico even. And so Borlaug, through some experimentation, realized that some varieties from certain lineages had this property, which he called wide adaptation or broad adaptation. And that meant these varieties, yeah, not only could be grown at different times of year, but he coupled that together 
with varieties that could withstand high levels of fertilizer and what he felt was a high inherent yield, meaning that these varieties would pretty much outperform most other local varieties. So even if they weren't highly fertilized or highly irrigated, Borlaug argued that these varieties were almost universally superior. And we're mostly talking about kind of tropical, subtropical areas. There there are limits to this wide adaptation. But Borlaug was really the scientist who opened up this idea that one variety could be grown over very wide areas. And this had only been considered at specific times in in history and never really caught on because it was never really that successful. But in the case of the Green Revolution, it was a, a phenomenon. And you could even say like one of the biggest transformations in, in the history of agriculture. So is wide adaptation mostly or predominantly a, a characteristic or a potential characteristic of wheat, or does it apply also to things like rice and maize and, and other crops? So that's where it starts to get interesting, because while wheat is pretty widely adapted, even without having this photoperiod insensitivity, it's just a crop that scientists for years have known is flexible in its adaptation and that it can be grown in, in different environments. But when the Rockefeller scientists tried to do this with maize and with rice, they just couldn't do it. And even with rice, and they used a photoperiod insensitive variety, I think it's something about both the inherent qualities of these crops and that they are different from wheat, but it's also that, for example, rice is grown in extremely diverse conditions. Whereas the wheat farmers that were adopting the high-yielding varieties, they were working in somewhat similar conditions, and you could also say somewhat more favorable conditions. So one of the main arguments that I make is that we use the story of wheat, especially as the archetype of, of the Green Revolution, but in some ways it should be seen as an outlier rather than this exemplary example because it really hasn't been able to be replicated in, in most other crops. And even in wheat, I give the example of in, in Turkey, for example, they, they could not use the same type of varieties of wheat in Turkey. It just didn't work in the climate. And scientists working for the Rockefeller Foundation ended up going more like the soil agronomy route or using conservation agriculture and techniques to preserve soil moisture. So in that case, it didn't universally translate even in wheat, but it makes a good story. And so right, right. we like to think that other technologies can also scale in the same way. Was wheat a major crop in India prior to this period? Was it a, kind of a staple or were other crops more important at that point? I would say it was a, a growing staple, especially among the more urban population. And so India was importing quite a bit of wheat and India had grown wheat. It's one of the centers of origin for wheat, but I would say it was not a major crop that was grown in India. And due to the Green Revolution, a lot of acreage that other types of, of crops were planted, not just food crops, but also jute, cotton, these kind of fiber and sugar cane type crops, they became replaced with wheat or wheat and rice. So there was a massive transformation in India to growing wheat. 
part of that is also because the government started subsidizing it. And so there is a situation today, you could say unintended consequences. I think looking back, it's it's a bit clear if you subsidize certain crops, that these will be the ones that are grown. So wheat and rice are are grown, but they're they're pretty low value crops. And India is now importing massive amounts of oil seeds, for example which are I think not too cheap to to import because they're coming as like actually like a liquid form. So you did have this replacement of some of the more indigenous crops and varieties and also like more kind of nutritious crops like pulses and and millets and those were a lot of those were replaced by wheat and rice. So I think the idea behind this wide adaptation focus on agriculture was to increase food production, right? And to try to introduce seeds that would produce more wheat for food because the concern, you know, a major concern was famine. So I'm wondering in that particular respect, what are some of the weaknesses of, or drawbacks to the focus on wide adaptation when your concern is food security? So an interesting thing about scholarship of the Green Revolution in I would say the last 10 years is that it's really shown that the, the Green Revolution wasn't even focused on increasing overall food production, that it was more focused on, you could say, transforming agriculture or modernizing agriculture. And I'm sure that there are scientists that were working for this foundation and for some of the other research organizations that did have very noble reasons for doing their work. And, and many of them probably did think about this aggregate food production. But when you really look at the archival research and what were the aims of the Rockefeller Foundation and, and Borlaug specifically, it was not to increase aggregate food production. It was that they thought modernizing agriculture was the only path forward and that others would lead to starvation, stagnation. But there are some cases where there were clashes between, say, Borlaug and the political planners or economic planners in India who were very concerned about social equity, and they were questioning this strategy of, of why would you concentrate on these farmers who are adopting the new varieties, adopting fertilizer? Shouldn't you try to kind of spread out the fertilizer more equally throughout the country? And yeah, there's, there's some cases where Borlaug and his colleagues behind the scenes we're saying, yeah, actually, it would have been more economic to spread out these fertilizers, but what we really needed to do was show people the change that was possible. So that, I think, is one of the big changes in our understanding of the history of the Green Revolution. But that kind of brings up, yeah, my, my argument about wide adaptation and food security, which is wide adaptation is a broad brush and agriculture is very context specific. And that's one reason, for example, that the Green Revolution did not really, you could say, catch on in, in Africa is because African farming is under extremely diverse biophysical conditions as well as socioeconomic conditions. And when you're dealing with that kind of variation, using technologies that are widely adapted or recommending one size fits all fertilizer levels, et cetera, 
these just don't mesh with the local needs. And so you do see that also in, in India. I talk about the difference between Northwestern and North, Northeastern India and how these regions have, have different needs. But that, to me, that's the downfall of this kind of technological solutions, painting things with a broad brush, is that they work for some people and those, those people might be spread out over a wide area but they also lead to inequities and they don't reach a lot of the people that really need support the most. That's farmers working in marginal conditions. So the, the wide adapted wheat required a lot of fertilizer and that was known to Borlaug and the other research scientists he was working with that it required a lot of input in order to function as they proposed. And so as you argue that left behind the people who didn't have access to the adequate levels of fertilizer or the inputs that, that they needed to produce these crops. So can you talk a little bit about who these smallholder farmers were? Yeah. So in India, which I know the best, it's going to be a mix of different situations. You have, of course, the commercial farmers who, but even the farms in India, the size of these farms are small compared to what we think of as a farm in the U.S., um, but when you get down to the level of smallholders, these are farmers who own like maybe one hectare or less of, of land. And then there's also many farmers who don't even own land, but who are renting it or who are working as hired labor on other farms. Agriculture is, is quite a big part of India's GDP. And there, there are quite a lot of people who do make their living on farming although that is changing a bit. There's, you know, um, urban migration. And part of that is just because you don't make much of a living on farming in, in India and in many places in the world. And that's why you do have people leaving the farm. But even in India, even in the more wealthier agricultural areas, farmers are still struggling to get by. And part of that is because they are reliant on fertilizers, on irrigation, they're constantly battling it against weeds. So it's it's kind of this ongoing treadmill of, of inputs and outputs. As you talk about the changes in the agricultural sector, it strikes me that Borlaug and the Rockefeller Foundation would have been conceiving of agricultural innovation as a process of what they might call modernization and what we would probably now call socioeconomic development, in which bigger or more well-resourced farmers produce more food and most people move out of the agricultural sector and into, say, manufacturing or service sector jobs. So could you talk about that modernizing logic and how it ended up playing out in India? I can tell you that you can say the architects of the Green Revolution were anticipating that by this, because they're betting on the strong approach, um, that what would happen is, of course, a certain class of farmers would improve their livelihoods, improve their incomes. And what they envisioned was that other farmers would then gain employment through that system. So rather than maybe having such a dispersed and fractured land uh, and land holdings that you might have kind of farmers who are able to yeah make money by renting equipment or or doing some labor although in some areas you know more mechanization that the labor is decreasing there were also aware and yeah you could see the logic in this type of argument that they were very focused on also reducing the cost of food and so they thought that by focusing on these more commercialized farmers or, or transforming these farmers to become commercialized, you still have 
many, many farmers struggling to get by and there aren't alternative employment options for them. I mean, that's why you see such a big migrant labor sector coming from South Asia is that there aren't alternatives to farming in, in a lot of cases. And you could say this is an unintended consequence and that the Rockefeller Foundation didn't necessarily know that this would be an outcome. I would say if you looked at some of the archival research that there were some of the warning signs there coming from, say, evaluators of their research programs, um, social scientists, economists who are coming in and say, wait, 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 this, this might not work the way that you're thinking it's going to work. So you wrote an essay in Issues back in 2020, co-authored with Mary Allenberger, that the commonly accepted story is that the Green Revolution technologies prevented global famine and reduced poverty by modernizing global agriculture. What are the sort of drawbacks to, to kind of taking that approach to agriculture for socioeconomic development? I think what's now recognized as one of the main drawbacks of this approach is it has left smallholder and marginal farmers really in the dust. And so while we have greatly increased global aggregate food production, food prices are generally low. There's research showing that most agricultural research today is just not well suited to the conditions of smallholder farmers. And so I don't so much mind if you want to be upfront and say, look, our concern is increasing global food production, keeping food prices low. I think my problem is more that many organizations have pivoted onto things like social justice, climate change adaptation, economic empowerment, without really changing this fundamental formula of the Green Revolution. And so there's a lot of claims about yes, reaching women, reaching marginalized groups of farmers, but it's just not panning out in most cases when you're taking this broad brush or wide adaptation approach. And, and so, as I say in my book and this article, I mean, wide adaptation, it's, it's more than just the varieties. It's kind of a mindset about technology transfer that has surpassed seeds and has extended into other agricultural technologies or even just types of, of development. And this is very pervasive in this idea that projects need to scale, this concept of scaling up. I really think that this comes from the Green Revolution and this idea that, well, if it works in one place and you have relatively similar conditions somewhere else, it should also work there. And the reality on the ground is just so much more messy than people would like to admit. It's so much more political um, and politically mediated, socially, culturally mediated. So that, I think, is one of the consequences is that taking a science and technology approach to international development. It often replicates the inequalities that are already existing in these contexts. And as I said, it's, it's often leaving behind the most marginal groups. What's an alternative or what's, what would be a better approach to thinking about these problems? I think one place to start would be putting more power and research funds back into local communities 
for example, in India, I show very clearly how agricultural research went from a more state-specific subject to a very centralized subject. And when you're centralizing over a country as big and diverse as India, there's going to be places and people who are left behind. So I'm not talking specifically about India, but in general, I think that in agricultural research, there's a need to differentiate what kind of research is more locally appropriate and needs to be conducted in local situations versus what are some of the types of innovation that do need some sort of centralized knowledge or equipment facilities such as seed banks or you know molecular genomic laboratories but to really differentiate um, because what there has been over the past few decades or there's past several decades is a consolidation towards more of these international research centers where you could say some of those resources could be going to more localized activities. I'm wondering what a more nuanced or critical understanding of the Green Revolution gives us in terms of thinking through ways to move forward. There's a few things I think we can learn from the Green Revolution story. One is that it was an unexpected path. Borlaug was kind of unconventional in some ways, but he was given really the time and the freedom to form a new path in agriculture. And yes, I have heavily criticized this path. I think that Borlaug could have been more sensitive to some of the you know social contexts of agriculture. But I think what there's been too much of is is trying to replicate the Green Revolution in different places. And what there should be more of is opening ourselves up to there are different pathways. We're, we're living in a fundamentally different world now with globalization, with climate change, and that these same technologies or types of technology-centric development are not necessarily the most appropriate to different contexts around the world. So in other words, just casting a wider net and yeah, maybe working with scientists and non-scientists from less traditional backgrounds, I think would be a great place to start. And yeah, just being open to the possibilities that the solutions are maybe a bit oddball at first. And yeah, Borlaug was really heavily criticized for going against mainstream science. And so I think just being open to these alternate forms, and I'm not saying you know, in particular to promote agroecology or organic agriculture. I, I think the way forward is going to be very context specific and will be probably some combination of high technology and low technology agriculture. Marcy, thank you so much for talking with us today. This was really fascinating. Thanks so much for having me, Jay. It's uh, been a real pleasure. To learn more about Marcy's work, we have a link to her book, The Globalization of Wheat, in our show notes at issues.org, along with Marumita Saha's review from the summer issue. Do you have opinions about the complex legacy of Norman Borlaug or the Green Revolution? Email us at podcast at issues.org with your thoughts. And please subscribe to The Ongoing Transformation wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks to our podcast producers, Kimberly Quatch and Sydney O'Shaughnessy, and audio engineer Shannon Lynch. I'm Jason Lloyd, Managing Editor of Issues in Science and Technology. Thank you for joining us.